Hello, my metaphysical mutts. I'm going to go with that one this week. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, I don't know. It'll make sense, I guess, for this episode. It does. This it, does. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I like it. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I am Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. David, it is just the two of us today. Unfortunately, no guests, but I am excited to just like be back here with you and like go balls deep. We did so much research for this one. We did. I love that I thought this was a research light episode. I was like, oh, we lost our guests, so we need to quickly do something. Let's do this research light. Oh, I guess it's not research light. I guess there's actually a lot going on. Okay. <laughs> now I'm I know. To- all this research between the October festivities. At the time of recording, we're a couple weeks away from Halloween, which my party supplies just came in today. I'm so excited. Just wait. Yep. Sabathon's going to be fucking killer awesome. this year. We are releasing just two days after Halloween. So I feel like it's still appropriate to say happy Halloween. Yeah, so happy, happy Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> wow. What a year for us. It's a great holiday. I love this holiday. Also this month, my cousins actually just opened a bar in Brooklyn called Medusa. So oh, after, sick. you know, I was doing the Brooklyn Horror stuff last night. And then after that, I just like decided to go in there. I'm like, I'm going to either surprise my cousin or I'm going to find out that the bar is closed. And it was both. They had already closed, but also my cousin was still there. So then we went bar hopping. And what happened, <laughs> I wanted to tell you about this. So at this other bar, I ran into a prop master who I had known years ago and She's like, oh, David. I'm like, oh, my God, it's so good to see you. And she's like, yeah, I, I thought you were, would be like too wholesome to go to a place like this. What? And I'm just like, we're, we're, at, a, we're at a bar. Like, it's just a bar. <laughs> and I just, do, do I need to like reinvent my entire image, Devin? Oh, wait, wait, that was it? There's no like, and then exotic dancers came out? I thought there was going to no, be like I'm another just like... shoe. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. Isn't that enough? I'm like, what What does that mean? I'm trying to figure out what that means. <laughs> I I think she just doesn't know you well enough. I'm like, wait, I'm so, what? <laughs> you can't be at a bar? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm like, but, what, what, what about me comes off as wholesome? Why, why, do, why would someone <laughs> think I'm wholesome? <laughs> I'm not wholesome. She didn't say it in like oh an insulting God. way or anything. Like she wasn't trying to offend me, but I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know what it is, David? You're just too good at your job that it's like, no, there's nothing else this guy does but watches movies, is on set, and like takes his job respectfully. I don't know. What? But do I need to like change my vibe? Do I need to like make sure that I'm not giving off wholesome vibes like is that actually my problem and like i just I found out that that's my problem <laughs> i don't i mean i know you too well that like to me you don't give off wholesome vibes but like also <laughs> like don't you don't need to change yourself people just like should try to get to know you instead of making quick judgments of like hey this dude that's literally wearing a horror t-shirt right now yeah, yeah. is wholesome I'm wearing a shirt where uh, it's Shelley Duvall and she's on The Tonight Show and the guy is coming out to introduce Johnny Carson. He's going, here's Johnny. And then Shelley Duvall is freaking out, like holding up a knife like that one shot in The Shining. (laughs) It's such a good shirt. We got that at, at New Jersey Horror Con, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one day I was at a concert with our friend JR and I like just took off my coat and then he just burst into laughter. And I'm just like, what what's funny? And he just goes, Your shirt. 
I like <laughs> didn't even remember I was wearing it. <laughs> but that was that was definitely like the best reaction I've ever had to a shirt. Yeah, it's the reaction that we all want to the clothing <laughs> that we wear. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, wholesome, David. I think uh, ah. we are talking about not so wholesome things today. So maybe the prop master will listen to this show and change her mind about everything. Or maybe you proved it to her last night. Just by being at a bar shatters that image of me. How dare you drink? <laughs> well, I wasn't drinking because I was driving. Oh, well, there you go. Anyway, anyway, today we have two ghost stories coming at you guys. Um, they're both classic films that I hope that you have seen. And, and if not, you're probably going to enjoy this conversation anyway. Very Halloween appropriate. Very Halloween appropriate. I mean, we all know that spooky season lasts all year long. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, like, happy new spooky season. It's It's past November 1st, so obviously spooky season has already begun. This is just like the time that you're curled up on the couch with your candles and a good blanket watching like I honestly watching these movies really brought me into the autumnal mood like so yeah, perfect it really does it's really great right? <laughs> these are great Halloween movies do you want to kick us off with our first one Miss Giddens loves children that's enough for the owner of Bly Manor to hire Giddens as a governess to his niece and nephew while he stays in town Miss Giddens travels to Bly Manor in the country and meets Flora the niece Giddens is instantly taken with the young girl and enjoys the company of the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross. But the idyllic life at the manor is disrupted when Flora's older brother, Miles, is expelled from school for bad behavior. At first, Miss Giddens finds Miles charming and mature, thinking the expulsion to be a mistake, but soon finds the boy's odd behavior, influences Flora, and Miss Giddens becomes disillusioned from their loving relationship that she has formed with the two children. However, it's the story of the children's history that starts to really shake Giddens to her core. Before her, there was another governess, Miss Jessel, and the uncle's valet, Peter Quint. The two of them had a romantic relationship until they both died on the property. Giddens begins to see Quint and Jessel around the grounds of the manor, or rather she sees what she believes to be their ghosts. And Miss Giddens forms a theory that the ghosts have come back to possess Flora and Miles. In fact, she is sure of it and is determined to save the children from the possession. Giddens' theories or delusions throw Flora into a fit and Giddens sends her away to her uncle in London. Miles, however, stays with Giddens, but is worse than ever before. Giddens must free him of the possession at last, and when we come to the last scene, Giddens begs Miles to say Quint's name and release him of the hold that he has over him. When Miles finally shouts his name, he screams and falls to the ground. Miss Giddens holds the child's lifeless body, and we are left to wonder, was any of this real? This is The Innocence, directed by Jack Clayton, written by William Archibald Truman Capote, and based on the book The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. So this movie, which is a wonderful movie, opens on an image of Miss Giddens praying. It's focused especially on her hands. And in general, there's just a lot of religious imagery throughout the movie. Do you make anything of that? Do you think that religion plays a role in this story? First of all, that opening image I was just blown away by. It seemed like such a modern image in such an old film. We had originally chosen this film because we wanted to talk about classic ghost stories. And, you know, ghost stories are are very, very old. They are not a, a new invention. In fact, you know, there are ghosts in the Bible. We see young Flora praying. She's saying her, if I should die before I wake. Take my soul, the Lord, to take. And Yeah, wh whatever that prayer is called. My, I, I'm trying to remember from a Metallica song. Huh? <laughs> 
I love it. But anyway, she's she's doing the Lord's. I think it's just the Lord's prayer. And and she and and Miss Giddens go into a conversation about this. And Flora like strikes up this 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 question about heaven and hell and how it works. And she says, you know, if people are not good and they don't get into heaven, because this idea is that people are good and they get into heaven, then are they stuck to roam the earth forever? And in that that sense is like says that like ghosts then are not necessarily all good of people. And I think that idea and the questioning of that idea of good versus evil specifically through religion is something that we see throughout the film. Once we start to learn more about the ghosts and who they were in their lives, we see this trickle of like, okay, are they sinners or are they saints? And did they belong mm-hmm. in heaven or are they actually damned to to walk the earth? Yeah. Also worth noting that they are named, I mean, he's Peter Quint, like Saint Peter, and Miss Jessel, we just see on the tombstone that her first name was Mary, which is also obviously a, specifically a Christian biblical name. Where are there ghosts in the Bible? I, I'm like trying to remember it now. It might just be in the Christian part of the Bible. I, I'm, yeah, I know it's the probably part just. Are, don't, doesn't the, are there ghosts in the Jewish, Jewish faith? Uh, it depends on who you ask. Hmm. It does feel like ghosts tend to have a lot of Christian symbolism. Even in the beginning of this movie, when Miss Giddens first enters the mansion, there is a specific frame that you can pause on when she is passing so that her head is highlighted by the the circular window like a halo, and she is putting her hands together at that exact moment, only at that exact moment. So that's just like, is that the Virgin Mary that that references? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. So. Yeah. Well, and, and to hold on that, because that's that's so interesting. So Miss Giddens, who we aren't given a first name. I, in fact, I think in the book, she doesn't have a name at all. And this film actually names her Giddens. Oh, really? Yeah. She kind of holds this place of like a representation of what I guess is the question, a representation of a pious woman, of a of an innocent woman, possibly. Hmm? Yes. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> but overall, like. Yeah, a a good woman, one would say a saintly woman, which then that that image of Mary would would make sense, or at least the image of the halo around her as she is holding her hands together would make a lot of sense. Yes. And going back to your question of like the first image that we have of her is her praying. It 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 is it holds that idea of like this is a good woman because she is a good Christian woman. She prays, but at the same time. That image holds such a fear that she does seem terrified or scared in that image. And so there is this, in that very first image, this debate of good versus evil. That makes sense. It's weird because we don't really know anything about Miss Giddens. Yeah. Like the, I just really love children is basically all we get we have no backstory we don't know her past things like i think in in haunting and blind manor is also a looser adaptation of this and that one i think she did get a first name and a last name and in that one she has a lot more backstory and they like start by giving her entire resume if i remember correctly it's been a few years since i watched that but this movie has none of that we don't know anything about this person we don't know what she was doing before she came to Bly Manor uh we don't know like anything about her childhood anything about any other people who she's ever met right we we know a few things um but very very few one of them being that she did grow up in a household that was not privileged like 
the household that Flora and Miles has, right? Yes, that is true. She grew up in a house where like, you know, they didn't have the opportunity to do a lot of things that Miles and Flora does. It was a little more of a cramped space or at least not as open as Bly Manor, which Bly Mm. Manor, of course, is very spacious. But at the same time through the, I mean, it literally is just a sentence, but also like the way that she interacts with other people, specifically Mrs. Gross, we see the difference in possibly where she was in the society at the time. She's learned how to read. She obviously is single. She is a little bit older. I believe Deborah Kerr was, is that how you say it? Deborah Kerr? Carr. 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 Deborah Carr. Surprise pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Oh, Scottish. She was in her like her like mid to late thirties, I think, when she was filming this. And so while the character in the book was in her twenties, it does give the sense that she is this as much as I don't want to use this word spinster. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that that's definitely true. Which kind of leads a little naturally into the next thing that I want to and this is legitimately like I'm actually asking because I'm not sure either way do you think this movie has a queer reading around miss giddens obviously haunting a blind manor she was explicitly queer but in this movie it's it's not clear to me like i think i went into this expecting more of a queer read but i'm not sure if it's there what do you think yeah i agree i i came into this like from the blind manor show (laughs) and i was like oh wait no she actually does not seem queer coded in this at all to me to me i wouldn't say at all i'd say it's not definitive but i mean even just for that era the idea of a spinstress woman who is 40 years old it's like oh my god you're 40 and you're not married wow you must be gay (laughs) like (laughs) yeah i mean especially with how much they talk about how beautiful she is right yeah which i mean obviously that's silly someone can be 40 and single and straight but (laughs) in that era that was like a bit of coding in itself yeah no and i and we're going to talk about this a lot with our next film as well but it's it's hard to like look back at these and be like oh single woman obviously queer or possibly queer because like I also want to look back at this with like a feminist lens as well, which is like, well, why can't she live her life the way that she wants to live it? And that doesn't necessarily mean that she's gay. It just means that like, okay, maybe she doesn't want to get married or maybe she like just isn't interested in that lifestyle. It's not binary, right? It's not either like you're straight and married or you're gay and not married. Like there's so many different things that you can be in between. We don't even know for sure. She was never married. That's true. We don't have anything about her. In fact, it's, To me, I was wondering this. She wears black so much throughout the film that who's to say that she Mm. herself is not in mourning for something? Mm. That's interesting. I think when we first see her, she's wearing white, right? But then she like sort of transitions into black throughout the film. Yeah, I didn't notice it until the very end. And I was like, wait, she keeps wearing all black. Why is she wearing all black? But the other person that we see wearing all black is the ghost of Miss Jessel. Which feels very intentional that when she's wearing black it becomes to me more of a parallel with miss jessel which is weird i mean both of them are miss jessel was obviously not queer code at all because she was having an active sexual relationship with peter quint who was the chauffeur right yeah they call him a valet chauffeur i think think it's like all the same i think it's the same thing i'm not sure yeah it's not but 
what would be the parallel between Giddens and Jessel then? Because she does not seem to agree with Miss Jessel's sexual activeness that Giddens seems like horrified to learn this, which to be fair, Jessel and Quint were having sex all over the house, like without closing any doors. They tell us this a lot more explicitly than I expected, by the way, for 1961. So like, yeah, it is definitely like an issue that the the kids could just walk in and see them having sex like pretty easily. At the same time, Giddens' reaction is not just like, oh, that's weird. And did the kids ever walk in on them? It is just like absolute horror. Like, oh my God, how yeah. could they have sex? Why would they have sex? And so it it almost reads me to be to like maybe an asexual reading of her. It could be. It is very apparent that she is a sexually repressed woman. Yes. But I think even beyond just her reaction to the Quentin Jessel story, I mean, even in the children themselves, one reading that I that I had of this film was she's coming in during this time of like kind of like a, a very key moment of coming of age for these kids. Mm. Miles, he does tend to say some some very vulgar things. And we can assume that he has said these things also at school, which is why he ended up being expelled. But he's also like, I don't know, what is he like 11, 12? Like during this time where like you're coming out of this innocent age and coming into your body's changing, you're coming into adult, <laughs> you're having these weird thoughts and you're trying to cope with them, right? And he's a child whose father is not there. His father died when he was younger. His uncle is not there. He's in town. And the only man that he had to look up to was was Quint. And we know that they had a very close relationship. And Quint was obviously a, a very sexual person during that time. So coming back to, to Miss Giddens, she doesn't like this about Miles. She really, really pushes this. Anything that he does that is sexual or him like trying to figure out what sex could be, she, she is abhorred by it, right? And I, I think that through that, we can see that she is repressed and kind of like overall thinks of, especially as a child as young as Miles, having these thoughts or, or experimenting in the way that he does is sinful. Yep, that is very accurate, I think. I mean, to be fair, Miles is also like a total fucking brat. Yes. <laughs> like that kid's an asshole. And Do you blame <laughs> him? Like, look at his <laughs> life. Yeah, I don't fully blame him. At a certain point, you've got to like, okay, step it back a bit, kid. But, <laughs> but in addition to all this stuff, he was the one who discovered Quint's body, which yeah. is horrifying and traumatizing. And Miss Giddens keeps trying to rationalize these changes in Miles uh, and in Flora as well. And, you know, she talks about like maybe... Quint and Jessel are trying to possess them, but also like maybe they're just grief stricken and they've never had to experience grief before. I think they were very, very young when their parents died. So they are acting out because they're upset in very right. reasonable and rational ways. And maybe just burying Quinton Jessel and never speaking their name isn't necessarily the healthiest way to help these kids process their grief. Maybe they just need therapy. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, when when Flora finally breaks down and, and loses it at a moment, it was after Giddens is like, Flora, Jessel is there. You see her. You see her. Like, why don't you see her? And this poor child who 
you know, had grown what I'm assuming would be a, a motherly relationship with Jessel before this. Yeah. Because she was, you know, other than Mrs. Gross, the only woman in her life. They do talk about Flora and Jessel having an extremely close relationship in the same way, in a similar way. There you go. Yeah. And, and so when Jessel dies, I'm sure that heavily affected Flora. And for someone to be like, hey, Flora, no, she's actually here. Like she didn't die and all the grief and trauma that you went through recovering from her death or trying to recover from her death actually is false. Like no wonder the fucking girl cracked, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so like (laughs) Giddens is like, it's funny because as much as she cares about children and as much as she like wants to care for these children, the way that she reacts to the possibility of them being possessed and the ghosts in the house, she is making these children so much worse. (laughs) Exactly what they don't need, you know? It's like, whatever happened to her idea of, like, we should tell the parish? And it's like, yeah, I mean, that that sounds like a reasonable way to go about it. Okay, no, I actually, I can do this myself. I just need to get them to say their names. Like, what? Where'd, where'd you get that from? Okay, that was one issue I had. I was like, where the fuck did that come from? She is selfish in that sense, which is is really interesting to think about in terms of, like, okay, which characters get punished? And if we're looking at the classic horror trope of like those who are sinful are the ones who get punished in horror movies. Obviously, Quint and Jessel were being, quote, sinful by being sexual with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but Giddens does have a terrible time. I feel like she is punished. Maybe it is that that reason of like her selfishness. <laughs> it's a very odd movie in how that art comes about. Like, the the way that Giddens is reading this is that Quint and Jessel were a very bad influence on these kids, and that they are now carrying that bad influence with them, and that it needs to be squashed out. Yes. The way we're saying is that it could also just be that they're experiencing grief, which is pretty natural and normal. Of course, it could also be something in between. It could be both of those things together. But, like, the, the there is also this idea that Giddens is enforcing that kids cannot be corrupted that they must remain innocent and we must protect the children won't someone please think of the children that whole meme <laughs> <laughs> but children are are people and they're allowed to change and they're allowed to feel and allowed to have yes these emotions and and they're allowed yeah, to grow up exactly it's weird to hold them on this pedestal and i feel like when we first see the ghost throughout the home, it's Quint. It's Quint is the first ghost that we see. And we normally see him through like window panes and almost as much as if it's like a re- reflection. Ooh. What do you see in that motif of Quint appearing? Like, do you, did you get a read of that? So there is one idea that I had where when she's describing Peter Quint, Mrs. Gross asks, like, was he handsome? And then the the way that Kins reacts, like, yes, he was handsome. He was. And then she, she says it was like, it was horrible how handsome he was. Something like that. It's a very odd line that almost like if you want to go back to the idea of Giddens being sexually repressed as opposed to just say sexual that there is a sexuality that she is repressing then it could also feed into that that she is horrified of the idea that she might be attracted to Quint totally maybe I totally agree and I feel like the fact that Quint's face is first appearing in the glass of the window panes or does he appear in in a mirror at one point I can't recall I don't think so but the window panes act like a mirror as well specifically you know locking myself onto the word reflection here as window panes do tend to reflect <laughs> thus what does the ghost reflect in miss kittens other than <laughs> like yeah it could be that 
that repressed sexuality coming forward. And to me with that, you know, she is also seeing it in the children. Again, why is the film called Innocence? Perhaps Giddens sees herself as an innocent as she does young children as innocents. And as they start to uncover their emotions and their sexuality, maybe she sees that happening within herself. And thus the children are also a reflection upon what is happening with her. So off that, I hate to bring it back to Bly Manor again, but Bly Manor is really (laughs) fucking good and you should all totally watch it. (laughs) Hey, there's a new Mike Flanagan show out right now. I've got to watch that tonight. In Bly Manor, they very much play into this idea of possession as sexualization and as ownership that uh, they talk about like the difference between love and possessing that you can't really love something that you possess that you're just trying to own it to control it and then of course Giddens idea of what's happening is that Quint and Jessel are possessing Miles and Flora Mm -hmm. so if you take this idea of possession as sexualization which I think still plays even in this movie, that it is you are literally inside of them. You get you get some uncomfortable reads with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh tell me more, David. Where are you where are you going with that one? <laughs> well, when Quint was alive, we talk about how he and Miles were extremely close to the point where Mrs. Gr- Mrs. Gross seems a bit uncomfortable with how close Quint and Miles were that Miles would attach himself to Quint. They would always be together. And you can definitely read this as there being an inappropriate pedophilic relationship there. And that that pedophilic relationship continues after death with Quint now inside of Miles, with Jessel inside of Flora. Sure. You can take that the next step. You have two adult lovers possessing two children siblings. And just what's the end game there? This feels incestual <laughs> yeah yeah to, to summarize david's point here it's a pedophilic incestual movie is what you're it's, saying. yeah rob would love this movie <laughs> he would love it <laughs> rob loves incest in his movies he'll be so upset that he missed this episode <laughs> i i think it's a it's a read i think it's a read it's not one that that I agree with, though I do see why there are points like your points make sense. And I and I don't know if that's do you do you actually believe this theory or is this one that like you are posing as a I actually do believe this theory. I think that this one makes a lot of sense to me. I think that it helps to explain more of why Miss Giddens is so distraught by the relationship if she is also recognizing the pedophilic nature of it. Like, even if necessarily Quint maybe didn't act on it, I think that there is, it is very possible there was something inappropriate about the relationship. Mm. Yeah, again, I think it's interesting. I don't necessarily subscribe to it because I, I see more of uh, the relationship between Miles and, and Quint being a, a fatherly one. And because I, I more subscribe to this as a coming-of-age film, it's hard with these old movies because just the way that our society views things is different you know that's true like the kiss the kiss is weird the kiss between miles and and miss giddens is weird but that's also like our modern lens looking at Which it kiss? there's two kisses there's two kisses i mean both of them are weird <laughs> the director fought to keep in the kiss at the end of the movie that the studio wanted to take it out they were like that's kind of odd and director was like no 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 that's staying in the movie that's important yeah but i think it's also like Maybe we are taking it too literal then. I think that's something that the the theory that you put forth does is like it takes it does take it at at its face value where like if we look at it more 
in a sense of imagery, like the kiss in a sense of imagery, like what else can that represent? Closeness, acceptance. One of the things could be, you know, sexuality and pedophilia, sure. But I think like there's there's something deeper there that I want to believe that it represents. Mm. When I was watching a movie, I wasn't even thinking about this. I was thinking about the Quint Miles pedophile relationship. But like I I saw that first kiss between them as Miles kisses uh, Miss Giddens and she's like, what the fuck? Why did you do that? And then the second one as that more motherly son, although it's a little weird that she kisses him on his lips. And then hearing that the director had to fight to keep it in made me think, oh, no, maybe people in this era, maybe this wasn't as normalized as I was assuming it was back then. Yeah. Which opens up more of these floodgates, which I feel like our listeners are probably catching on to that. There's also a read that Miss Giddens has some pedophilic attractions. Um, Yeah. And all of this also makes sense because these are kids without like actual guardians in their lives that their their parents are gone their uncle who's supposed to be taking care of them is nowhere to be seen he's in the first scene of the yeah. movie and then he's he's gone for the rest like when miles says my uncle doesn't care about us like he's right his uncle's not there he's not in the movie yeah he's not and it leaves them open and vulnerable for this complete stranger who we know nothing about to come in and take advantage of them totally fair totally fair <laughs> and Obviously, um, as we've said before, like she's sexually repressed and maybe she is repressing a pedophilic notion, you know, but also like I don't really find it that weird that Miles kisses her at first. Like he is somebody who, again, he's a child like growing into sexuality, has no idea what this is, has has no one there telling him what this is because everyone who is a a, a grown up relationship in his life has died. He goes to an all boys school. You know, Miss Giddens is the only woman I'm assuming I'm assuming the only woman that he like sees that's not an old lady like Mrs. Gross. He probably is attracted to her. The weird side is then. Yeah, her returning the kiss at the end. Yeah, I think it's not questionable that Miles is attracted to her, and I think that's completely normal for an 11-year-old boy. The question is whether she's returning it, and the kiss at the end, I think, is the greater evidence of that. But there's also more. I mean, even just, like, the way that she ushers everyone at the house, she's like, I have to be alone with Miles this weekend. All of you have to leave so that I can be alone with Miles and help cure him of his possession. It's like, what are you doing? Like, that's so odd she is also like weirdly lenient with them at times like there's the classroom scene when uh both kids are making a fuss and she like kind of brushes it under the rug and is like oh let's play hide and seek we can stay up a little bit longer while we we play this game it's all like she she is there's no one there to control her there's no one there to reel her in and Mm -hmm. like it, it makes sense to me that you someone would resist this theory especially because of other adaptations where she's a more likable character but in this one it was almost odd to me to see her so unravelly i guess that there there sure. is so much less control on her she is not as sympathetic as i expected i've seen this movie before but like years and years ago so i was somewhat watching it with fresh eyes like i didn't remember a lot i didn't remember how it ended and i didn't remember how unclear our sympathy toward her is that it, it i i you can you, yeah. you don't have to be sympathetic to her even like the fact that she's wearing black the fact that she's wearing the, that she's mirroring miss jessel the fact that she is mirroring peter quint in that image that you just explained even that opening image that we said where she mirrors the virgin mary the halo 
the window that's shaped like a halo has like a spider web pattern in it. So is she mm. the butterfly or is she the spider? Even just the way that she says, I just really love children. The way that she says it is yeah. weird. It's it's definitely creepy and I think it changes the story completely. I, something that I did learn, I, I have not read the original book. Have you read the original book story? It's really short apparently. It's only like 120 pages. It's a novella. Yeah, I think it was published in like a, you know, one of those literary magazines at first. So I want to read it now. Same. So, something that I learned actually was so Truman Capote came on to this this mm. film to write it. And I believe the other person who's credited for the screenplay actually is credited because he did a stage adaptation first of The Innocents and then came oh. on to do the film. And then Truman Capote came on to make it more cinematic, I guess. But apparently all this, the sexual undertones came more when, when Capote came on. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's, that's any surprise. <laughs> so... From that, I don't think that these these themes of sexuality are as prominent in the story. Un uncertain, but that's that's at least like a read that I've seen out there. Is the pedophilia read? Is that 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 that's Capote's edition? Oh, gotcha. That yeah. makes sense. But regardless of whose edition it is, if it's in the movie, it's in the movie. Even if it's not it's in other the other adaptations, yeah. you can read as different. I mean, I definitely am not going to read Haunting a Blind Manor this way. I don't think Haunting a Blind Manor has this at all. But I think this movie does. Totally. Well, I mean, I don't agree, but yes, yes, yes <laughs> I think it's a it's a valid read. Well, I'm gonna close out this pedophilia discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we we oh, were like, uh, yeah, we'll touch on that, and then it became much more of a discussion than we had realized. Oh but no, it's I knew it was. Bob is gonna be so <laughs> mad he missed this episode. He's gonna be like, man, you guys were talking about incest and pedophilia. <laughs> Sorry, oh, <man>. Rob. <laughs> Yeah, but before we move on to our next film, I know that you had a you have some exciting news that you wanted to share. Oh yes, so my short film Pillow Talk is uh it, it's finishing up its festival run soon. So maybe the last chance to catch it will be at Yonkers Film Festival in like a week after this airs. So we will be screening on Saturday, November 11th at 6 p.m. at Yonkers Film Festival. I don't, at time of recording, have more information than that, but I'm sure that when this releases, there will be more information and we'll put it on social media. So if anyone is in the area and wants to watch my five-minute short film that I don't think is about incest and pedophilia but you can read it however you like then you, you can come on over to, to yonkers and check that out yeah and we talked about this film a little bit on the pod before but it's a really great movie and hopefully soon it'll be more widely available for everybody who isn't in new york or the tri-state area but and that information will, will definitely give you guys as well if you keep following us on social media we're at cadaver dogs pod on instagram and twitter and yeah the links to this will be in the description as well yeah. And actually, I think this is a good place to say I've also been doing TikToks for us. So we are also on ah, TikTok. <laughs> right. I forgot that that exists because I'm not on TikTok at all. So thank you for doing that. Because <laughs> I did not want to deal with TikTok. Uh, not to say to you guys that we're judging you listeners who do have TikToks like great for you i barely use my instagram even like i'm really bad at social media i i <laughs> meanwhile i'm like overly obsessed with tiktok and really need to stop um but it's fine because it's been great because i get to make tiktoks for for the pod i'm overly obsessed with reddit david is our redditor but yeah if you want to watch any like i don't know 
horror memes is basically what I've been doing on there, horror meme videos, and also wrapping up what we had watched for the month. Um, also clipping some of our, our current episodes that maybe you did not get a chance to listen to. Catch us there on TikTok at Cadaver Dogs Pod. Cool. Well, thank you for letting us plug our shit. That's what podcasts are for, right? <laughs> yep, sure is. The next film we have for you is also coming up at us from the 1960s. David, why don't you intro this film? Hill House was built some 90-odd, very odd, years ago by Hugh Crane for his wife. However, both his wife and later his second wife died within its gates. His daughter Abigail inherited the house and stayed there till her old age when she died calling for her companion, a companion who then herself inherited Hill House, despite accusations of murdering her benefactor, and later hanged herself from the old rickety spiral staircase in the library. Is this a curious coincidence of sequential deaths? Or is it true what they say, that the dead are not quiet in Hill House, that whoever walks there, walks alone? Eleanor is a quiet woman. For the past 11 years, she's become caretaker to her mother, but her mother has now died and Eleanor finds herself without a place, without a home, when she is contacted by one Dr. Markaway. Markaway wishes to study Hill House to prove scientifically that it is in fact haunted. In addition to Eleanor or Nell, who witnessed a poltergeist as a child, we also have Theodora, an alleged medium, joining them at Hill House. Rounding out our cast of four is Luke, a distant relative of the Cranes, who is set to inherit the house next, and wants very much to remind us all that ghosts do not exist. There are, of course, practical explanations for the house's oddities. Angles are all slightly off, making hallways confusing and maze-like, and allowing mere gravity to slam doors shut on their own. That cold spot outside the nursery where Abigail Crane died, is obviously just a draft. And what of the strange noises that Nell and Theo hear at night? Like something large is stomping around, pounding on the doors, trying to get in. Sometimes the wood itself warps as an unseen presence pushes against it. Despite these horrors, Nell has also fallen in love with Hill House. She says that she never wants to leave here. But when Dr. Markaway's wife, Grace, who came to take him away from this nonsense, disappears from the nursery, Nell becomes increasingly unpredictable. She claims that Grace has taken her place in the house and should have been her, Nell, instead. She ascends that rickety staircase in a trance. When Dr. Markaway drags her down, he puts her in a car to send her home. But instead, Nell drives recklessly through the garden until she crashes her bitter end. With Nell gone, Grace reemerges, not entirely sure how she got out here. But none are still questioning The Haunting of Hill House. This is 1963's The Haunting, directed by Robert Wise, screenplay by Nelson Gidding, adapted from Shirley Jackson's novel The Haunting of Hill House. Had to had to end it on the Hill House. The Haunting of Hill House. Ba -da -ba. The Haunting of Hill House. Roll credits. <laughs> <laughs> I also said house a lot in that summary, but it's kind of just unavoidable. Oh, yeah, bro. It's a house. It's a house. Um, <laughs> and a house is not a home. Oh, oh, that's actually something that I want to talk about later. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So this movie's based off of the book, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Mike Flanagan adapted this one as well. Yes. We just happened to cover both of these. It's funny because they like they really wanted to change the title of the book for this movie. And I would argue that like a good possible title could have also been The Haunting of of Eleanor. Because even though all of these people are in this house, it really does, as Nell has puts it, the house is coming after her and wants her. Um, so I wanted to ask you, David, why you thought that she was more connected to this haunting than anybody else in the room. So there is a theory, which I'm definitely not the first person to come up with this theory, but I didn't think to look up what other people have said about it. I'm sure that others have said the same thing. That Nell seems to be either a descendant of or a reincarnation of 
the caretaker who hanged herself from the staircase. Um, in my summary, I called her a companion because I rewatched the opening of the movie and they call her a companion, which is interesting. And yeah. we can come back to that. Um, we will definitely come oh. back to that. Mm-hmm. But regardless, there are a lot of similarities, especially since I rewatched that opening. Aside from just the physical resemblance, they are both caretakers for some older woman. The one who's never given a name who took care of Abigail as she died, and then Nell, who took care of her mother in her final decade. And both of the older women died while calling for the younger one. That uh, we talk about this, Nell, um, I mean, they, they talk about this in the movie, that when Nell's mother died, she was ringing to call Nell to come and help her, that something was wrong and she needed help. And Nell just went back to sleep and ignored it one time and then her Mm -hmm. mother died and she is also accused of like you murdered your mother or you didn't murder your mother i promise it's okay it's like i think theo's the one who says that right yeah it's like you didn't murder your mother because theo can read minds or sense things about people so she kind of understands that nell is afraid that she killed her mom and there may even be, there's some tension with knowing her sister, so maybe her sister also thinks that. And then we also hear that Abigail Crane's companion was also accused of murdering her almost intentionally, which may or may not be true. It's probably not true. The rumor is that she was hooking up with a man at the same time, and that's why she didn't hear Abigail calling. Like... Taking care of an older person is a lot of responsibility. And the fact that you can't just let something slide one time is like a whole fear in itself. Yeah. But regardless, it's the same fucking story. Mel's backstory is the backstory of that woman. And then we're told they have a resemblance. Like, yeah, I'm totally down with her being like a reincarnation or whatever. Yeah. For me, my answer is like that and then some. Whereas like just like going off of what you said, more than than that they were basically doing the same thing and, and were the same people and look alike. The other thing that I see here and, and thinking about specifically the time that this film was made and the time that the book was written, which I believe is 1961, it was only a few years earlier. Both of these women are are living this life where they're living a life for someone else, right? Their whole entire life is revolved mm-hmm. around another being. That's the caretaker aspect of it, right? And the one time that they do something for themselves, the one time that they want something else is when they are punished. And so looking at Nell specifically and why she's targeted, she's living this repressed life. She's living with her sister now after her mom has passed. She's living on the couch in her sister's living room. Like she has nothing of her own and she hasn't ever had anything of her own. She described her past life as like, my mom would never let me do anything. So the one time when she's first reached out about Hill House, she's excited about it. It's something that is hers and hers alone and something that she gets to experience. She's so happy that she gets her own room. I mean, she gets angry when she has to bunk with Theo because she's like, no, I finally had a space of my own, you know? And she finds herself wanting more out of life. She wants to feel independent. And I can see how, and you can see how this is like punishment as the film goes on, right? Specifically looking at, the 1960s being the early onset of the second wave feminism where women are finding independence. And I think that is very clear through Nell's character. And the reason why she, yeah, the reason why the house targets her, I guess, to go back to the question is like, it's we're watching a woman debate over this traditionalist lifestyle of being a caretaker, of being a, a, a repressed woman in society versus like discovering that she has wants 
for herself that she is now able to like maybe have a little bit of independence. I will also say that it is emblematic in Theo's character as well, I think, in a different way. That while Nell is uh, repressed and is forced to live someone else's life, Theo represents what she could have. That Theo is uh, a more liberated woman. She lives, she yes. just says her roommate, um, which we'll talk about queer coding later, obviously. But Theo is very grounded. She is very matter of fact. She speaks her mind. She... It's not afraid to speak her mind. And there yeah. is there is no they, they are like polar opposites and they are drawn to each other. There is an intense friendship between Nell and Theo that they like immediately start calling each other by nicknames and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Fun fact. So Theo's wardrobe was designed by Mary Quant. Mary Quant is actually one of the women that like basically started the mod movement in fashion, which was like cool. very much a part of the women's liberation movement. I love that name. Right? Mary Quant. She was like... <laughs> She was one of the women to basically introduce miniskirts into society. So very liberating. But I do want to talk about the other women in, in this film. So Theo is obviously a modern woman. So why do you think that Theo wasn't targeted then? So there's a weird thing because I think there is a disconnect between what Nell believes the house represents and what it actually represents. That Nell sees the house as something that is just her. She sees it as a place where she belongs. But if we're making this analogy with her and the unnamed companion of Abigail Crane, mm -hmm. then Hill House isn't really that. It's still... A place where this potential past life was subservient to another person. It is, she is not the reincarnation of Abigail Crane. She is the reincarnation of this outsider who was brought into Hill House and then stayed there forever. And she is still just stepping through the same movements where she lives the rest of her life there until she kills herself. Like, it, it's, it's not actually liberating. No, it's not. I, I, I'm still like processing like I think these, these themes are very clear, but I feel like this film is more about a debate rather than like a full resolution of mm. the liberation movement. Like, it, what do you it's, think it's still about whether or not, you know, it's right to move forward in the world in terms of modernism and liberation. And I think I think it shows like the hard time that women are, are having with letting go of, you know, maybe. And I think this is something that I see today, too, is like. Some women want to have that life of having a home to take care of and a person to take care of, but also like want to support that like they have that option. You know, it, it it's a complicated feeling when you're like, yes, women 1000% deserve independence, but I also like I would like the opportunity to, to raise children because that's just what I want to do, but I want to have that option, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in modern feminism, I think it's more about women being allowed to choose what they want, right? Yeah, yeah. And men being able to choose that as well. 1,000%. Yeah, and I think that was less so during the 60s. I feel like there was yes. this pressure to know, like, getting married is is not feminist. Yep. Which is actually interesting. And I have one more point before we move on to queer coding, I swear. <laughs> or like, I have one more point and then a question. But yeah, when Theo is talking about her her home back home and and Nell asks are you married Theo makes a very clear statement that no she is not married so yeah I think that's another hint towards Theo being a a modern feminist and a lesbian we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> one question I want to ask before we get there there's another woman in the, well there's two other women in this film three yes. four 
But there's another prominent woman in this film who is Grace, the doctor's wife. Good point. What do you take of her presence in the film? So a thing, Nell also has a apparent love or what she thinks is love for Dr. Markaway, I think. And totally. You know, she's gravitating toward a married man, toward an unavailable man. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. We know she doesn't know. But regardless, Nell kind of represents this floaty, superstitious philosophies that he's really interested in studying, whereas Grace is completely no-nonsense, practical, grounded, like, why Why are you interested in haunted houses? That's so weird. Come back home, please. This is stupid. And I, I want to call Grace anti-feminist, necessarily. I don't think so at all. She feels like a strong, capable woman who is controlling her husband, not in, not even in a controlling way. I don't mean that in a bad way. You don't argue with Grace, as Luke says. You do yes, not. Argue you don't with argue Grace. with Grace. <laughs> She's traditionalist, is yes. how I would describe her. She is the wife who is in control of the household and wants the husband to stop doing all of the stupid stuff on the side and to come back home and like just be a fucking man already. Yeah. But then she also winds up being convinced that the house is haunted by the end of the movie. <laughs> in a really intense way, in a very quick way. She, I mean, she faces this thing head on. So I guess the three different women then like show a way to approach the upcoming modern wave or the upcoming generation and how things are changing in the future. Nell being like very timid to approach it. Theo being very confident and taking it full on as a totally adopting it as her way of life. And then Grace kind of totally rejecting it and then getting basically hit in the head with it. Like there's no avoiding that this this thing is coming for for them at any point. So do you do you think that the house with this read literally represents second wave feminism? I mean, this is early, early on second wave feminism. Like, I think the book would even be completely before it. Although, obviously, all of the things that lead into second wave feminism are in place throughout all of this, that the 50s is still a time of, like, repressed housewives. People, We look back at the 50s now and are like, wow, being a woman in the 50s sucked. Well, a couple a couple things to hit on second wave feminism. Like, yes, it's early, but, you know, it's not before. Like, this is still like it's, it was okay. very much a discussion during this time. I mean, part of it also brought on by the first contraceptive being available, um, oh. which originally came on the market as a pill for menstrual issues in like 1957, I believe, but became widely available and marketed as a contraceptive in 1961. So I think a lot of conversations were changing specifically around that, especially around single women during that time. Cool. Thank you. I found that really cool. I was like, oh, this makes sense why feminism became such a big deal. But going on to what the house represents, like, again, I feel like I'm back and forth in this area because to me, the house like kind of is Hugh Crane, right? And Hugh Crane is very much an older way of thinking, a more traditional lifestyle. Yeah. The 1950s lifestyle, you know, like this, this house is a home and women must obey the man of the house. Lust is a sin. So like, no, but at the same time, I guess maybe it's just about confronting. Maybe the symbolism is just like confronting the past. I actually really like what you just said, that with Hugh Crane being this traditional manly man, that the house could actually represent the traditional gender roles that mm -hmm. Nell thinks it is her liberation, but it is actually just the same bullshit that she's been stuck with. Theo 
is not targeted by it, but she is aware of it. She recognizes everything that's going on and manages to escape it by just saying, fuck that. And Grace walks head into it, challenges it, and gets spat out and obliterated by it. (laughs) Nell falls for the lies. Theo sees the lies for what they are. And Grace is oblivious to it and is harmed as a result of the traditional way of viewing genders. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think the final line aside from narration of the movie is when Luke, who this like give me goosebumps because he is the one who's been like ghosts aren't real the whole time. Then he just yeah. looks at the house and goes, it's got to be burned down. So if you look at the house as traditional gender roles mm-hmm. and it has to be burned down, then yo, we got to do this fucking feminist shit right the fuck now. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and it's a man who says it. The man who was resisting it, who didn't want to believe that there was any problem at all, who was dead set on this is the way and is now like, I was fucking wrong. I love it. I love it. Okay, let's end that there. And now we can talk about queer coding. (laughs) (laughs) So we've said how this movie can represent the new wave of feminists who are rejecting traditional roles. One way you may reject traditional roles is for women to have sex with other women instead of with men. And there is a lot of that in this movie. It is very subtle, a little bit subtle. It's not that subtle. It's pretty obvious. We can agree that Theo is very, very queer-coded, right? Yes, I would agree that she's queer-coded, yes. Shirley Jackson doesn't like that, apparently. Yeah, which is funny because like, I thought it was more obvious in the book than it was in the film. And in the film, it's pretty strong. I've read the book, but it's been a while, so I don't remember. But just looking at uh, uh, other people seem to think that it is either more explicit in the movie or it is equally subtle slash explicit in the movie and the book. Obviously, later adaptations got increasingly more explicit. The 1999 one references pretty obviously that she's, I think, bi in that one. And then Mike Flanagan haunting a Phil House, she is just openly gay completely and there is no question about it at all predominantly people have read theo as gay that is not a revolutionary read and if you're one of those people who like gets really mad at arguments about queer coding and you're getting mad that we're saying that theo is queer coded then you're wrong (laughs) i do want to play devil's advocate and i'm just playing devil's advocate in in this sense for the sake of the the conversation but if the author themselves is saying that she's not. I do want to explore what that would be like cuz like how as I said before and as we were talking about before that Theo is like the representation of a of a fully modern woman. I think the things that queer code Theo are the fact that like we don't know who she's living with but she's living with somebody. She says we. Um so it seems like that she's in a relationship. We just don't know who that is. We know that she's not married. So yes, that could be hinting at like oh she like lives with a woman who is or in a relationship with a woman, but it could also be that, okay, she's not married, she's living with a man, but can't say that she's living with a man because that's against the morals of the time. Yeah, she doesn't describe it as relationship. She just says her roommate. Her sister, my roommate and I are on the outs at the moment. We're, we're in a, a an, on a, an off period, and it's like, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about with a roommate. Yeah, <laughs> but she also, she also says we, like she wees them. So like, I feel like it's a relationship, <laughs> right? I mean, it, but yeah, there's there's yeah. enough doubt there that we're not we're not sure, which is why it's queer coding, right? Like, and that's just one example. Yes. But it, it's it's of course never explicit. She is very affectionate with Nell. 
We also do have to say that at this period of cinema, there was a lot of censorship, which I think we want to talk about in a future episode more in detail. But to summarize, there was the Hayes Code, and you couldn't be gay on screen. Just flat out, you can't be gay on screen. The censors actually told them before they shot the movie that they shouldn't have Nell and Theo touch at any point. And Robert Wise said, yeah, fuck that, and just let them touch. (laughs) They touch a lot. But maybe that's part of the story of this, this film, right? Is that because they are so affectionate towards one another in this movie and we see women being, well, I don't necessarily see their relationship as fully positive because Jesus Christ, now you need to stop screaming at every second. I have problems with her. <laughs> but she does not treat Theo nicely. But Theo does, you know, they, they support each other. And it's, it's nice to see on screen, but definitely not something that we don't see two women embracing as much as they do uh, during this time, as much as yes. they do um, in this film. And so like maybe the ideas of when this film first came out, seeing that was more queer coded than it possibly is now. I don't know. But that that just perpetuated that story, you know? It very much reads to me that Theo is flirting with Nell. And then yeah. Nell also has a line when she is angry at Theo when she calls her an unnatural woman. Yeah. And for me, I do not know what else that could mean. I mean, Theo has the <laughs> ESP. Like that that would be oh, the yeah, other thing. It's like yeah, and and which is you know, it's a it's a paranormal ability which could be a, a sign of the devil being Carrie fans. I'm sure we know what that looks like. <laughs> which an, another odd parallel to Carrie is that Nell's house gets stoned and Carrie's house in the book gets stoned. Mm. You know, when you're talking about stoning houses and queer coding, it's a whole conversation there that I hadn't thought of until this moment. Oh, that's interesting. And Nell doesn't have a father figure. Yeah, none that's mentioned, I don't think. No. And so, I don't remember if it's mentioned in the book at all. This leads us to, and I think this one's a little bit more open to interpretation. You were just playing at Nell's advocate. You still think Theo is queer-coded. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. Do you think Nell is queer-coded? I, I was going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. No, I, I, I don't. I think oh, really? that, like, she she definitely is repressed on her sexuality. I think like it's something that she was never necessarily able to explore, but she very clearly is attracted to the doctor um and is interested in him. I I don't see her necessarily returning any anything towards Theo. Theo's the only other woman that she like basically has a relationship with in the film, so that's why I would use her relationship with Theo as an example. No, I see I see Nell more as like a woman very much coming of age or coming into her own rather than I see her as someone who's exploring their their sexuality with a person of the same gender. I think she's more just exploring sexuality, period. I disagree. Great. <laughs> I know. This is great. Great. Now we can just reasonably both represent both arguments. Perfect. Perfect. I do think that Nell returns to Yo's affections to some extent. Um, I think that unlike Theo, who is... Uh, probably a bit more open about her sexuality and more aware of her sexuality. I think Nell is very much closeted and in denial about any queerness, which might be that she's gay, might be that she's bi. Uh, the man that she latches onto is an unavailable man, but both Theo and Luke are flirting with her, and she 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 very much does not go into Luke's flirtations at all. But Theo, like, when... Things are banging at the walls. Her reaction is not to ask Theo for help, but to run into Theo's room, into Theo's bed, and, like, 
hug her close and embrace her. And to me, this is saying that, like, there is something there. Like, obviously, that can be something that just friends do, but I don't think that's what the movie is getting at. I mean, Nell is very innocent. She's childlike. She, like, doesn't know how to control her emotions. She lashes out. She, like, cries. She kind of acts like a child. And, you know, running into someone else's room because they're scared is very much a childish thing. That's how I read that as like, she just isn't, she just isn't mature enough to like have a handle on this stuff yet. Like she isn't the person like Theo is or like Luke is. And also she doesn't have, like Luke and Theo can try to flirt with her, but that doesn't mean that she has to give in. Like Luke's kind of annoying. Oh yeah, Luke kind of sucks. But with her being childlike, exactly. She has not yet embraced her sexuality and part of this she has to run away from everything she has to isolate herself and there there is a repression there because she has not accepted how she actually feels because she is still figuring out what she wants and yeah. i think it 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 that there's part of her that just wants theo not even theo specifically but just a woman that she like looks mm. up to and respects theo she sees theo's lifestyle as something that she would like for herself that she wants that so much yes i i agree with all of that like minus the 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 queer part of it. Like I think you can still have you can still show somebody exploring their and discovering their sexuality and discovering what they want and like admiring another woman without their necessarily them being queer. It could be either and you're right like she could be bi, but to me like specifically because of how she interacts with the doctor, I think pushes me more away from the queer coding side. But I agree that all those things of what she wants and what she's exploring are there, just minus the the queer aspect of it. But even if she doesn't know that the doctor is married, he's still like not returning those affections at all. That it makes Isn't sense to me that there, there's totally a thing when you latch on to people who will never return that because it's just like kind of a way of avoiding your sexuality without having to admit that you're avoiding your sexuality. Mm. And like that is how I read that. I don't think she actually loves him the way that she claims she does. I think that she is just latching on to the idea of a potentially stable relationship that will make her normal. Or or just she's latching on to the idea of him at all. Like, I, I think he mm-hmm. does, like, he shows her an affection that she has not had, right? Like, she's been with her mother who, I mean, in the book, we get more of an idea of how badly her mother treated her, which was, like, really bad. And then we also see a little mm-hmm. bit of Nell's home life with her sister, it's not a good relationship at all, her being in that in her sister's home. They yeah, they not are not very close. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that like someone who shows her a little bit of affection or at least has these conversations and respects her her theories and her thoughts, that she she starts to like them. It's the first person. Like she's allowed to explore what those feelings mean because she hasn't necessarily that we know of had them before. Well, he's assigning her feelings to supernatural things instead of just saying, hey, have, have you considered that you might like be gay? Well, I mean, I mean, her feelings towards him, though, she's like, you know, she obviously has affection towards him and she's debating herself whether or not it is attraction or, you know, if, if it is just like a friendship. Yeah, I think that he's basically enabling her to remain repressed, he even admits it at some point. He's like, I should have I should have gotten you out of the house sooner. This house is not good for you. It <laughs> is kind of fucking you up and you're doing a massive downward spiral of, I think, regressing even further and believing that this house is where you belong. 
I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not you believe that she does belong there. I don't know. Did you say whether or not you think she belongs there? No, I didn't answer that. I mean, she wants to belong there, so why why not? She belongs there because she wants to. <laughs> she deserves <Cool>. that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I feel comfortable saying that she belongs there because what that means is her basically killing herself. So, like, the final line of the movie is it's Nell narrating and she, you know, in the beginning they say the famous line from the book, whoever walked there walked alone. And then Nell says it again, but changed it to we who walk here walk alone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad. Like she has gotten what she has says that she wanted, that she will be in Hill House forever, but she will forever be alone. Yeah. I mean, and if we if we go back to the theory of if the house represents traditional values, then that kind of works where it's like, okay, if you want to live this family life and be a caretaker and have a home and have a husband, like sucks for you. The rest of us are going to be out here wearing Mary Quant clothing and (laughs) going antique shopping with our lesbian lovers. And that's just the life that uh, you're missing out on, man. You're going to be alone. And it also works with the queer reading. Oh, yeah. Because she is not accepting her sexuality. That means that she will always be alone. That yeah. because she has rejected, she rejects both Theo and Luke, like she won't take either of them. So now she is just doomed to be alone forever because she hasn't been able to figure her stuff out because she is still repressed at the end of the movie. Yeah, but if she says what she wants, why can't we be happy that she gets what she wants? Does she want it or does she just think she wants it? Has she been manipulated and gaslit by the house? That is the gray area that is just, I'm still trying to, I need to watch this movie like three more times and write (laughs) 10 more pages of notes. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of this conversation too does lead into the point of comparisons that we want to talk about between these two films. I would argue that they are gothic horror. Would you agree? Yes, I would. But what is gothic horror, Devin? What do you think gothic horror means? What makes something gothic horror? Or what makes it gothic? Goth. So gothic horror is rooted in a literature movement and specifically like a social movement. My research, and I swear to God, this history lesson like does come back to horror movies. It it, kind of goes back to the conversation that we're having. And this is why it's so great that these films are filmed in the 1960s, because when gothic horror became popular. It was a result of, what's it called? Not radicalizing, but pushing back against traditionalism. Mm. This traditionalism was in the early 1800s, so a very different kind of traditionalism, but one that led from the old stiffy ways of the Victorian era into the Romantic period and the Gothic horror period. And people saw this as more of an emotional period. We were talking more about our feelings. We were talking more about theories, which of course led more into these darker theories about death, life. We were talking a lot more about scientific theory than scientific fact. So it became more of a of a sharing of ideas of emotion rather than sharing ideas of the mind, I guess. And so with us more openly talking about, and I say us, this, this took place in, in England mostly, it opened up to more of the darker tones. Many people look at Frankenstein as being a, a perfect example of gothic horror during this time. Other things that define gothic horror obviously are ghosts. They're a big part of gothic horror. A lot of it are these manor homes that we tend to see, these basically abandoned Victorian homes and exploring of the history that took place there. And we see it a lot as a battle between modern theory 
as well as as traditionalism is seen as a common theme throughout gothic horror as well as unrequited love etc I don't want to go on forever, but I have a lot more to say about it, but I want to give you the opportunity to to jump in here so I don't talk for like 10 minutes. You've thought way more about this than me and have like a much better answer and a much more thorough answer. I'm just going to be like, oh, it's all about location. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a big part of it, though. It is. One of the things that I discovered while doing research, because gothic horror to me was like always a vibe. And I was like, I actually don't know the history of gothic horror and what makes something gothic. That's kind of where I'm at. So I did a lot of the research and like something else that kept coming up in the research too was, you know, gothic horror was also this discussion of classism. And and why mm. this feeds into place is because of what I said of the abandoned Victorian home or the old crumbling mm-hmm. Victorian home representing an older way of life. That's what happened when like, you know, people started moving to the cities. People started to really have these these intense class struggles. It's a conversation of looking at the wealthy and being like, wait, what the fuck? You have such a different lifestyle than us of this lower class, this working class. It's always all of these houses, because when I say yeah. location, it is this specific location of this like old Victorian mansion. And these were always owned by extremely wealthy people and held up by like dozens of servants and maids and cooks and caretakers. They often would have someone else taking care of their kids, essentially, and raising their kids like that was part of it. And, you know, you you have the other examples of it. You have movies and books like Rebecca or Jane Eyre, where it's a mm-hmm poor woman gets to experience the fantasy of marrying some extremely wealthy man and then uncovering all of these skeletons in his closet. In Rebecca, it's Rebecca is not the name of the main character. It's the name of his previous wife, who was the most perfect person you could ever imagine that she will never live up to as some lower class trash. In Jane Eyre, she finds out that He also had a former wife, it's always the former wife, who was an insane woman that is now kept in his attic. Mm -hmm. Spoilers for a (laughs) like 200-year-old book that you read in high school. I completely forgot the ending of Jane Eyre, and now I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I loved it so much. Or in the case of The Innocents, Miss Giddens experiencing this lavish way of life and seeing these children grow up in a way that she never had the privilege of doing it is a, it is a yeah. full discussion of privilege right how could these children with so much that they're given be acting the way that they do or in the haunting when Nell dreams of someday having a house that has the was it lion statues that she wanted yeah and then she talks about how like well i just have like little figurines of lions on my mantle is all that she can have and even if you want to Go back to the parallels with her and Abigail Crane's companion. That was also someone who we forgot to mention that part in the queer coding, that there's also a read that Abigail Crane and her unnamed companion, they call her a companion, not a caretaker, a companion. So that which also. But that was actually a job back then. I mean, it happens in, in Rebecca as well. But in Rebecca is also queer coded. <laughs> yes, that was also queer coded. But like. I think there's also a a reading there that's like these women are living in like a patriarchal society where everything that they have relies on the company of a man. Literally, they can't own fucking property that like when their husband dies or when their family, such as their father, like Hugh Crane dies, they are literally nothing because this is the world that we have built. And all that they get is the company of another woman, which like, yes, sometimes they were relationships sexually, sometimes not. (laughs) Anyway, 
back to yes. So yeah, I think <laughs> Mel and Giddens, they have this guilt a little bit, or they feel guilty of wanting those things that are considered materialistic, right? That are coming yes. with a different class. Like they they feel bad that like even though we talk about how the world needs to move on and how we need to modernize society. And I'm going to say the 1% of the time back then were representations of traditional society that we want to revolt against. They do feel guilty for for wanting something from that time period, such as yeah. the money to afford these statues. And again, since we referenced Jane Eyre and Rebecca, where the woman marries the super wealthy man, I think both the innocence and the haunting kind of flirt with that to some extent. Totally. With the innocence, she also comes to the super amazing mansion and she's just like, oh my God, it's so much bigger than I thought it was. But she's not marrying into it. She is just there, unless you want to read it as a pedophilia metaphor. And then... <laughs> <laughs> And then with the haunting, you have, you know, like Luke is probably the more traditional Mr. Rochester type figure that he's set to inherit and he's flirting with her, but she rejects him. She is flirting with Dr. Markaway, who, while he doesn't literally own the house, is kind of in charge of the house right now. So it is still this flirtation with the authority figure who will be in charge of this beautiful place that you can stay here forever. And that is her mm -hmm. reasoning is that she wants to stay here forever. So, yeah. Both of these movies do have that lower class woman wanting to ascend, sort of. Yeah, totally. And you mentioned the doctor and something I found interesting about his character in terms of classism as well is like he he says he comes from money, right? He describes his family yeah, as a respectable English family that dragged, quote, all the Victorian virtues into the 20th century. And yeah. he says that he revolted against those ideas and moved to America. Interesting point. He moved from England to America. Wow, good catch. For those not sure, then The Haunting is set in, I think, in Connecticut or Massachusetts. It's just in New England. So, you know, that whole region of America, the Stephen King region. The region where there's actually older houses. It's interesting because The Haunting is set in America instead of England. It's also, the house is not as old as I assume Bly Manor is. It was only built 90 years ago and it may mm -hmm. stand for 90 more even when I mean, we talked about the idea that Luke is Mr. Rochester, Dr. Markway is Mr. Rochester, but you can even argue the house itself is Mr. Rochester right. because the movie kind of plays with the idea that the house is alive, question mark. Yeah. Are these movies haunted house movies? Are these movies ghost stories? Like, mm. I feel like there could be a debate, as you said, is the house alive? Are the ghosts in the innocence real? What, what were your pickups on for, for both of these? In The Innocence, we actually see ghosts. Now, mm -hmm. you can still say that they're not real if you want to. Like, the movie is very much from Miskin's perspective. I think she's in every scene. We're always with her. The camera is always with her. But it is possible to read them as being figments of her imagination. Whereas in The Haunting, we never see any ghosts. And, like, in The Innocence, the ghosts are named. They're given backstories. In The Haunting... We're given a lot of history about the house, but there is never actually specified who might be haunting. The closest we get is the dog. <laughs> and I, I don't think they actually say, do they say the word ghost at any point in, in the haunting? Because they very they much do. say like, okay. But they do say, yeah, the house is alive. The house is bad. It's like the house. And the sounds that they hear, they don't sound 
like ghosts the way we think of them. It's not like a person walking around. It is like thunderous. It like are these footsteps? It's like bang, bang, bang. It yeah, is way there, louder. Yeah, there are voices though, and I guess there is the moment there where Nell is yeah. holding a hand. So there are like these small moments, but none that you would traditionally think of as ghost moments. We can ask who are the ghosts in the haunting, or we can ask. Is it even ghosts or is it literally the house itself? That's a question that is very much roots itself in gothic horror. What do ghosts represent in these stories? And if, if you do look at the themes that, that gothic horror tends to explore and the themes that we have talked about here today for both of these films, my argument would be that the, the ghosts do represent the past being a, a traditional past mm. slash the guilt for these two women the repression from these two women. I think it's very much rooted in Nell and Giddens and their relationship with the world and their complicated feelings with it. Yes, I think they are I being tortured by, by these feelings. In The Innocence, there is the line when Giddens describes her childhood home. I think it's Miles who says like, oh, there's no room for secrets in there or something like that. Yeah. And there is kind of this idea that the larger house allows for secrets. What do you make of that? I think it, it could also be like you having space to be by yourself in your own thoughts. I mean, for now, it's it's literally having space at all to be able to do anything on her own and to discover who she is and like make choices on her own and not relying on anybody else. But I feel like the same could be said of Giddens in that she becomes the lady of the house. She has control. She makes the choices. And now she has to face the consequences of the choices that she that she makes because they're her own and they're not anybody else. They're not her moms. They're not her older brothers. They're not her employers. They're the ones that she made. She made choices. It led to a child's death. This is not going to end well for her. <laughs> yeah. It's that space, right? There's that quote that Mrs. Gross says, you know, in the dark, these rooms get bigger. It's scary because it's like, yeah, when you're sitting there in the dark by yourself, there's nothing else to do but to to think about. Really to think about the past is usually where most people's heads go. And not just the past of the house, though. I think it is also the secrets of the people, how Jessel and Quint would hook up in the house and they wouldn't even close the doors the house is so big so it's you know they say that the large house allows you for secrets but everybody knew about this right was that a secret it was an open secret it's one that they they try keeping from getting so it becomes a secret mm, that's true it makes sense, literally, that like in, in my small apartment, if someone's hooking up in my small apartment, then we all know that there are three rooms here. <laughs> but in a big mansion, even if the servants are all there, you can like walk through and no one can see you. There yeah. is room to hide a ghost in, in these walls. Exactly. And, and what is a secret but something that you are hiding, right? And something mm -hmm. that either has happened or has been thought or has been said, has being the word here of it being in the past and you hiding it from the present or from the future. In Jane Eyre, the secret is the former Mrs. Rochester, who is literally still in the house, and she is not aware of it. So there you go. This is David spoiling Jane Eyre for everybody in the world. <laughs> you all know what happens in Jane Eyre now. You're welcome. Go read it. Funny enough, I'm reading a book about haunted houses like as we were talking about doing this episode. Perfect. So I'm reading Ghostland in American History in Haunted Places by Colin Dickey. 
and he touches a lot on specifically the, the haunting of Hill House. But he has this amazing quote that I wanted to read to you about what he believes ghosts are. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Joan Didion once wrote, and that is just as true of ghost stories, which tell stories of the dead as a way of making sense of the living. More than just mm. simple urban legends and campfire tales, ghost stories reveal the contours of our anxieties, the nature of our collective fears and desires, the things we can't talk about in any other way, the past we're most afraid to speak of out loud and in the bright light of the day, and in the same past that tends to linger in the ghost stories we whisper in the dark. I just felt like that was such a perfect summation of everything that we were talking about in terms of like the ghost stories. It is. I like it. So with that note, I think I have one more question. And it's it's just kind of flat out, but it, it can be a discussion. In both of these movies, in The Haunting and The Innocence, literally, are the ghosts real? Okay, for The Innocence first, I don't want to have an answer for it, which I know is a cop-out. But what I loved most about this movie is that there is doubt there, that we don't get that resolution. I... I don't think there are truly ghosts in the innocence, but it's more fun to have doubt there because it's mostly through her point of view. I think they more are a, a, a symbol and representing her current issues with her life, but it is so much more fun if there are actually ghosts. But there's nothing really there to to prove that there are ghosts other than she sees them. I definitely remember this movie being a lot less ambiguous. Things just like, yeah, there were ghosts in that movie. We literally saw them. But I'm with you, and then on rewatching it, I I don't think there are any ghosts. I, yeah, like no one else ever really sees them. There's that moment when we think Flora sees Miss Jessel, but then Miss Giddens asks Flora, like, "Do you see someone there?" And Flora just like kind of gives her this look, which you can read as like, "Oh, you see it too," or it can be like what what are you talking about yeah and then she's just like oh Fuller definitely saw it too it's like well she didn't actually say that though and even like miss giddens wants to make it a big thing when she's like oh but how would i describe the ghost i saw and you knew who i was talking about and then mrs gross very correctly points out you literally just saw his picture dude like yeah we don't see him until after she gives the ghost a face, and before, it didn't have one. She saw a man in the tower. She saw a strange woman walking the halls out, like, the corner of her eye. She didn't see any faces, clearly, until after she knows. We never even actually know if what she's seeing as Miss Jessel is the correct image of Miss Jessel. I don't, I don't think she saw That's a picture true. of him, but I also don't think she describes what Miss Jessel looks like. And actually, we don't even fully get Miss um, Jessel's face. We also just see a figure from far away. So we don't get those details. It's this thing of like, Miss Giddens has a theory and she takes bits of reality in order to prove her theory. And she's just like reading reality differently than everybody else so that sh she can reinstate her theory. She's a lot like Donald Trump in that way. <laughs> I will say the one thing that I think is probably the most significant evidence that there are ghosts, which we definitely have to address, is that before Miles dies, he does shout out Peter Quint. Yes. So that could suggest that he has been seeing Peter Quint. It could also suggest that he knows what she wants him to say and just says it. He also does right. die, and we're not given like a clear reason for his death. There are definitely ways That's to read true. this. That's true. But also, can we rely on what we're seeing in these moments? Like That was going to be my thing, too. It's like, at the end, 
the only two people left in the house are Giddens and Miles. And as you said, everything is from Giddens' point of view. So however we read that scene is going to be from her POV. And how do we know that any of that is even real? Even the final time that we see Peter Quint standing and he like holds up his hand like, I shall now release Miles and let him die. Then it cuts and we realize that it was a statue, that there was a statue yeah. there. This movie is very clever in its ambiguity. Okay, so what are your reads on The Haunting? Oh, in The Haunting, it's real. Mm. I think in The Haunting, it's real. What do you think? There's a theory that I think is fun, but is very hard to prove that the story is not real, that there is no Hugh Crane, that things were planted. Oh. In the house. Oh. Specifically stemming from the doctor tells Nell, don't stop in the town. Don't talk to anybody else around this. The first person to bring up Hill House is the housekeeper. But who's to say she isn't, you know, hired from from the doctor to create this, to study the paranormal. You need a ghost story. Who's to say he didn't come up with a ghost story about this house in order to, mm. to feed his experiment. And Mrs. Danvers, every time, you know, she brings Nell to her room and she tells her the ghost story. And then Theo, she tells her the ghost story. So she is implanting this idea in their heads from night one. The theory falls apart a little bit, but it's a theory. Yeah. The problem for me is that they all experience stuff to some extent. Yes. That they're all seeing shit, even Grace. Like, I think that there's too many things that are hard to explain if there's nothing going on. So it's funny because in The Haunting, you don't see the ghost. So you think that it would be more ambiguous, but I, I feel like it's less. I feel like there's still... Up until the end, when you see the mark in the tree that is like, oh, shit, yeah, there was a crash here from the mm. first story. So maybe the first story is yeah, real. That could be anything. Yeah, that could be anything. I mean, the whole thing could be could be a fun house. They, did you know, actually, when they were first doing a pass of the screenplay, they wanted everything to be not real. And that in the end, it's revealed that Eleanor is just in a madhouse. That was the first. Oh, that's pitch. so stupid. <laughs> Interesting enough, it came from the screenwriter's reading of The Haunting of Hill House, because I think the way that the house is described as there are no sharp corners. And he's like, oh, this is a very padded house. This is like, oh, oh. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Huh. It would have sucked if it was all in her head. And Shirley Jackson yeah. was like, no, I don't. That's not what this is. This is a ghost <laughs> story. Like it, it happened. Like this is a fucking ghost story. These ghosts are real. Because with the innocence, the ambiguity comes from the fact that no one else ever says that they're seeing ghosts. Mrs. Gross kind of goes along with Giddens to some extent, but even then, like, as Giddens gets deeper and deeper into it, Mrs. Gross eventually is like, yo, I didn't see anything, man. On the other hand, in The Haunting, all of them, even Luke and Grace, who are the most doubtful, wind up accepting that there are ghosts there, or that the house is alive, or whatever it is, that there is something supernatural. If you trust them. Devil's advocate, if you trust that they're not hired hands for the doctor. Fair. But the fact that in The Haunting, we have the doubters come around, and in The Innocence, we do not have the doubters come around. Because mm -hmm. you, you also know me, that I always want to read movies where it's real, where it's all real. So for me, it, it really takes a lot for me to be convinced, like, I think it's all in their head. And in The Innocence, I really like that pedophilia read. I think that holds up so well. <laughs> that this is all her, like making excuses to dance around her pedophilia. Not that she's like actually molesting Miles, but that she's like trying to explain away her attraction to him. Like, oh, well, there's actually, it's actually an adult who is possessing him is why I'm yeah. attracted to him. Uh -huh, and sure. we can fix yeah. that. Yeah, and sure. we can fix that. <laughs> if he just admits that there's an adult inside of him, that then he can, he can be a little child again. 
again, she's feeding her delusions. Like, it's just, where the fuck does she come up with this stuff? We have no idea. <laughs> she makes so many logical leaps and bounds. But to fully answer if I believe the haunting is is real or not, I, I that was a devil's advocate theory that I threw out there because I thought yeah. it was interesting. But no, I, I, I definitely think <laughs> that place is haunted, for sure. I think we hit everything that I wanted to talk about, which is surprising because I feel like there was so many things that we could talk about with both of these movies. And there's so much more that we could. We could talk about these for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) Is there anything else that you really need to get off your chest? No, I mean, honestly, if there is more conversation to be had, I think people should like discuss with us over social media. Like again, always promoting to continue these conversations. So hit us up on Twitter with your own theories and anything that like you shouted at us while you were listening to us in your headphones, shout at us on Twitter and Instagram at cadaver dogs pod and TikTok. We're on TikTok. I do have one more thing that I'd like to get off my chest. It's um, you see this like weird hand that's pressing on me. I I don't like it. It's kind of giving me the creep. So I just, I want to get rid of it. You see that? David's David. I'm home alone. David, what are you doing, David? It, it's right there on my chest. I I, I want to get it off. I, I I don't know. Do I see it? Am I just feeding into your delusions? Oh my god! Is it gonna <laughs> is it gonna haunt me now? Oh my god! Wait. Yeah, we'll worry about you, that later. You, let's just. Oh, let's are just you do okay? Now it's time for our ghost's favorite part of the show, the bone review section, where we review each movies on a scale of one to four bones with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is Devin Shepard with The Innocence. All right, great. Let me just take a small sip of my whiskey here. Nice whiskey. I want whiskey. I know. It seemed like it's raining outside, guys. I, to really set the mood of this podcast, it is raining. I have a million candles lit. My whole house is decked out like it's fucking Halloween. And we've been talking about gothic horror all day. So I feel like whiskey was very fitting. All right, The Innocence. God damn, is this movie not fucking gorgeous. The cinematography in here is just like so beyond its time or just the start of its time. I don't even know. The the shots, not only are they beautifully composed, but I think the direction of them are really amazing. I think the other strong point here is, I, I mean, I said it before, but my favorite thing is the ambiguity. I love that we don't get told if this is real or not. I love that there still is that debate of whether or not it's in her head and the fact that nobody else sees these ghosts. It's so unique of a ghost story in that. The children are fucking killer in these performances. I really enjoyed them. I did really see them as kind of like debating with their their maturity levels. And then, I don't know, I really felt for them. I was a little bored, I guess is the wrong Aww. word to say, but I was taking out of it. I know there was just something that didn't fully click for me to give this a four bones. And I, 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 I will have to rewatch it, I think, and we'll probably give it a higher grade, but I unfortunately cannot pinpoint what that was. And maybe, maybe it was in the performance and my dislike of Giddens and the fact that we don't get much about her character. So she is a mm. hard one to follow throughout the film. Mm. So I'm going to give this three bones. Okay. David, what were you thinking for the innocence? I can sympathize with Miss Giddens being a a difficult protagonist to follow through no fault of Deborah Carr, kind of to the credit of Deborah Carr, actually. For those who are not familiar, by the way, I'm only barely familiar with her myself, but she was a very, very major star in her day. She had like six Oscar Mm -hmm. nominations. She was a big deal. Deborah Carr was like the Amy Adams of her day or whatever. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, she's fantastic in this. Any difficulty in following her, I think, is intentional. Because she does make 
such drastic logical leaps and we don't know much about her i really love this pedophilia read i'm like so fascinated by it <laughs> i'm sorry i think it makes so much sense and it just puts the entire movie in such a different light that i'm like oh my god you think you're supposed to be afraid of ghosts but you should have been afraid of the protagonist all along <laughs> Yeah, it's such a gorgeous movie. There was a scene at some point where I thought I saw a ghost standing behind them, and I like kept fixating on it, and then I finally realized that it was literally a statue, just a statue in the garden that I was looking at through a window, and I'm like, oh my god, that's great. Like It, it, it looks so good. Beautiful movie. I love my black and white cinematography uh, when it's at its best, which is definitely at its best. Everything you said to the movie's benefit as well. There was something else I wanted to say, but I can't think of what it was. The child actors are really good, which is like, like shockingly good. Oh man, this movie is fucking creepy. I love it. I'm going to give it three and a half bones because mm. I think this movie is perfectly splendid. <laughs> I will probably give that on my second viewing. I'm excited. This is my first time <laughs> seeing it. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought it was a rewatch for you. Cool. No, I've never seen The Innocence, but I have seen The Haunting before, which I have a very special place in my heart because I'm a huge original West Side Story fan. And Russ Tamblin was like one of the first people I had a crush on when I was little. <laughs> so that's why I discovered The Haunting, because Russ Tamblin was in it. I don't know why. This is an antidote that is only fun for me, but... Amber Tamblin lives a couple blocks from me and we go to the same coffee shop and I always and I fucking I love her separately but then I so I have the days where like I run into her and I'm like oh yeah and like I used to have a big crush on your dad is what I think I obviously don't say that to her but you should I'd say that to her. to her I wanted to say that to her he's so old um is he still alive anyway he's still alive there's um, a chance <laughs> there's a chance <laughs> And he probably visits her when he's a couple blocks from me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> this week on Devin's Weird Crushes from Cinema. <laughs> I feel like this one. This one's a little more traditionally attractive, I think, than the guys that you usually go for. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> my bone review. It's more like a bone-er review. Oh, God. Oh, David. Full <laughs> chest right now for, for Russ Tamblin. And his, however the fuck old he is, which is probably 98. Anyway, where I was with that was like, I have a special place in my heart for this movie. I find it creepy. I find it thrilling. I find it engaging. It is, the characters are so well-rounded to me in a way that like they're all fun and they're all very different. And it very much like it screams literature, but in a way where I think it does a brilliant job of adapting the original story, which is so hard to do. It's creepy. It brings all these like debates to the forefront, which is really exciting for me. Yeah, the writing's good. A lot of these shots in here also like created a lot of classic ghost stories. Like the breathing door obviously inspired the Haunted Mansion, which I am a huge fan of the, mm. the ride. So that is always a, a fun thing for me. Anyway, I gave most of my time to, to Russ Tamblin. So I'm going to go ahead and give this three and a half bones. Nice. David, please hit me with your non-boner review of The Hunting. You don't know me. <laughs> I'm, I'm David, very you're too wholesome. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> no, yeah, Theo is fucking hot, and it's a shame that she is uh, most likely a lesbian. 
No, really, no. I yeah, I love this movie. I talked even last month about how much I love this movie. Both of these were rewatches for me, but it had been a while, so it is very fun to revisit them with fresh eyes as an older person who is able to appreciate more of the subtleties and symbolism. And also the campiness. This movie is it's not like campy campy but there's definitely like a fair amount of 60s camp just like in all the the playful banter between all the characters it's really fun i love listening to characters talk in these but like in the haunting there is so much just like witty rebuttal after witty rebuttal and i'm just like no one talks like this i love it (laughs) it's great (laughs) but it's also like really fucking creepy like I, I, I know that a lot of people like want to be tough and are like, oh, I'm not affected by old horror movies. I think this movie is much scarier than most movies that come out today. I had fucking goosebumps at the end. I'm like, this is great. I'm into it. So um, with apologies to Allison Broder, I am going to give this three and, half, <laughs> three and a half bones. You directly shot out at Allison. <laughs> oh, much love to Allison. Yeah, much love to Allison. We we very much disagree about which haunting movie is better because the 1991 movie is absolutely horrible and bad. But the Mike Flanagan one is fantastic. <laughs> I love all of them very much. But which one's better? They're all different. <laughs> Between 63 and 99, which one's better? Uh, the 99 one also holds a special place in my heart because it was the one that gave me nightmares more than any other film. Oh, my really? God. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. couldn't stand near a fireplace for like two years. <laughs> Three and a half bones for The Haunting, 1963. Amazing, fantastic movie, masterpiece. Love it. Yeah, these movies are great, and I can't wait to revisit them again in the future and see if my readings change again. (laughs) (laughs) Long live spooky season. We're in the fall now. I feel like this is a Halloween episode. It is our Halloween episode, essentially. Thank you, all the listeners, for sticking with us for this long. This one was a little long, but we had so much to say. It was so much fun. I can't wait to watch Mike Flanagan's new gothic horror show about Edgar Allan Poe. I'm going to watch <laughs> that like right now when we stop recording. <laughs> same, same. Well, I'm going to wrap us up. We are Cadaver Dogs, and we'll see you later, Mutts. Peace. In the night, in the dark, 